Welcome to Small Places, the podcast where you can listen to conversations on challenging adultism, understanding children's rights, and fight for children's liberation. I'm your host, Eloise Rickman, and I'll be talking to activists, academics, educators, authors, and those who are on the front lines of this vital work. If you enjoy listening, why not sign up to Small Places on Substack, where you'll find essays, Q&As, and many more resources. You can join for free, or you can subscribe for just £5 a month to support my work and help me bring you more conversations just like this one. Now for this week's episode. This week I'm joined by author Doreen Cunningham, author of Soundings, Journeying North in the Company of Wales. I first read Soundings earlier this year and it absolutely blew me away. I've been recommending it to everyone I know. I've already decided I'm giving it to several people for Christmas this year and I know that it's a book I'm going to pick up to reread over and over again. In it, Doreen describes her journey with her two-year-old son to search for some grey whales on their migration. But it's a book about so much more than that. Throughout the book, Doreen weaves themes of social justice, of community, of resilience, what it means to care for one's child during the age of climate crisis, and what it is to reckon with the impact of colonial legacy on Indigenous communities. But it is a deeply joyful, hopeful and inspiring book, and I really know you're going to love it. Thanks. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So I just wonder for anyone who hasn't had the pleasure of reading it yet, if you can just tell me very briefly what the book is about. I can tell you, I don't know if it will be brief. Um, <laughs> so the, the backbone of the book is a journey I did with my two-year-old after um, uh, becoming homeless, living in a refuge and a hostel and really struggling. I uh, decided to jack it all in. Um, things weren't working in any shape or form financially or socially for me. I was quite isolated. Um, I'd gone back to my home island of Jersey and um, I uh, went to follow the grey whale migration from the birthing lagoons in Mexico, where you can see the mums and their babies, um, to the Arctic feeding grounds where they travel. They do this incredible migration all the way up the West Coast. And I was really inspired by their endurance, desperate for some encouragement. And I just thought, uh, I'm not getting it from the human world. I lied to get a bank loan and went off to follow them. So that's the backbone of the book. But I had personal, deeply personal reasons for wanting to go back to the Arctic, which I wasn't really aware were drawing me at the time. Um, I had previously uh, been there to talk to Indigenous people about what they thought about climate change. This was way back in 2006. And I was a BBC journalist and I was massively frustrated coming from a science background at the climate denial on air. I didn't understand what was happening. Um, and so I applied for a grant and went up there to talk to people about climate change and see it for myself and ended up falling in love with an indigenous whale hunter. So there's a love story in the book too. And those journeys are intertwined. Well, I think you summarise that beautifully and very succinctly <laughs> as well. So one of my questions reading this book is that you do a lot with it. So there is obviously a memoir strand. There's also what you could call, of course, some ethnography. There's nature writing. There's also the book's timeline 
jumps back and forth and you deal with a lot of different times in your life as well how did you manage to structure a book because it reads beautifully you know it doesn't feel confusing to read it oh, makes great. sense but I know that as a writer probably to structure a book like that takes quite a lot of work to make it flow so well was it something you had to put quite a lot of effort into um well I just wrote it all out um and I got help from um Andrea Mason who runs the literary kitchen I knew that I wanted to write a book to try and carry the story of climate in my lifetime and looking back I realized that the whale journey was the perfect vehicle for a book beginning middle end and you know there's quite a lot of emotional drama in that story um and that the experiences I'd had as a journalist um, with the climate denial and also going to the Arctic and having the privilege of living with that beautiful family and that eye into the way of life there that was transformational for me, absolutely life-changing. They all were experiences that I thought I had a responsibility to share. Um, and it was kind of by the way that the whale journey carried it for me and I had to put myself there on the page. I'm intensely private. And so I just thought, OK, well, this is worth doing. I feel so strongly about the climate crisis. It came from a place of distress about how people are being misled and um, how technological solutions are being pushed, which um, will cause further damage to the ecological crisis is not just a climate crisis. So I wanted to bring to life the people and the non-human communities, the whales and the love and the community that I'd experienced and which I think are the solution to the climate mm. crisis. Um, and so, yes, there was a lot. I wrote it all out with the help of a course that Andrea provided and then I did another course and one of the tutors was Blake Morrison who um, is a memoirist himself and I went to him with the structural problem actually I had all the material and I was like I can't just keep doing flashbacks because it's too cluttered and jumpy and he said go and read Jenny Diskey's Skating to Antarctica and that's a book where she travels to the Antarctic um, and it's also intertwined with childhood memories so it's very similar and she just does all alternate chapters and I was like great problem fixed <laughs> and then there was some fine tuning which my editors helped me with um, because there were flashbacks to childhood which were really important because of the close relationships I'd had with animals and because of the violence I experienced in my childhood it was all kind of necessary to the story um, and the reader needs it I think to be able to travel with the narrator and understand why she's so lunatic that she would just say right the obvious solution from being unhappy living in a hostel is to go and follow the grey whale migration I remember a, an early conversation with my US editor Valerie where she was like um Doreen we're not quite with you I need to understand more about you as a person and so there were bits that weren't in the original draft that she helped me put in um, about childhood and also about the relationship with my son's father and I didn't want to be gratuitous I wanted to be very respectful of everyone who is included in the book Meanie's included and so I got you know support from her while I was doing that mm. and there's so much I want to kind of pick out from there but I'll try and restrain myself to just a few <laughs> So one of the big themes that it seems running through is this idea of mothers. And there's obviously yourself as a mother during this process, but also obviously the grey whales and the way that they mother their young. And then there's also your more difficult relationship 
with your own mother and also some of the mother figures in the book like Julia who you go and stay with yes um but what really struck me reading it is that you know both from yourself with your son who you know sometimes in quite challenging situations you're always trying to do the best for him take care of him show him the world the same way as these gray whales are doing the best for their babies taking them on this very perilous journey and it felt to me so clearly as you were writing this that this felt like you know you want to keep your baby safe and part of that for all of us has to be tackling the climate crisis head on because this is something which impacts all of the babies you know human and non-human and this felt like a real act of love this book of kind of resistance and saying no we're not just going to take it lying down and we need to fight fight for our babies and for all the babies oh my god Eloise I'm so glad you take that from it it's really moving to me to hear you say that um because I feel that mothering at the moment is an impossible project we're trying to bring children up with love in a situation that is catastrophic and which is actively being ignored by people who are supposed to be leading us and we urgently need to find new leaders mm. and yes I gave this book absolutely everything I could to try and help people who felt they were facing difficulties just from being bullied because the book is kind of about power and how it's being abused um, how we have been lied to by big industry. We're trapped in a system where we are becoming um, part of the problem. You know, I have friends who can't avoid driving and, and the world is built around systems which are destructive to it. And so we're implicit, but mm. we never asked for this. And I just don't know what to say other than the book. I, I just did my best. I thought yeah. this is what I can give this situation. Here it is. And, you know, there's a lot of humor in it and so much love from the people that I encountered during those episodes that I portrayed and the resilience that I learned from various people and the lessons of kindness that I took that I hope it's a very empowering and positive book in the end, but it does not shy away from the difficulty. No, and I really took that from it. You know, it feels like throughout the book, there is this thread of um, at some points quite visceral violence you know that different people are experiencing and you know whether that's violence on a very personal intimate scale or violence on a big community-wide scale such as what was done with indigenous populations in North America um, but yet throughout this violence people and animals are not um, they're not portrayed as victims or passive in any way and like you say there is this strong call towards resilience and resistance and strength, whether it's your own strength in deciding, you know what, I'm going to take this gamble, pack up my baby and take them on an adventure, or the strength of whales who are keeping on, keeping on in this really inhospitable um, environment that we're creating for them, or the strength of Indigenous populations who have fought back. You know, there's a great... Um, bit that you discuss in the book which we were talking about before recording where um the population are really pushing back on um whaling quotas which are being imposed on them and so it's not just oh we're gonna take this lying down it's a constant negotiation of power and a constant pushing back and resistance and I think particularly with the climate crisis so often when I talk to people there's this sense of, well, what can we do? We're so powerless against these big systems and structures and our lives are so chaotic and busy and tiring and what can we do? And the book does feel very encouraging. It kind of shows that, look, we can always push back even when it feels like we're very small. We can always fight for what is important to us. 
Well, yes. And I think the main thing that we can do is, um, is why I'm so happy to be speaking to you and so happy that you found this book, is that we can love our children. Mm. That's the main message that I got from the whales and um, from um, my Nupiak family that I stayed with in the Arctic was we can love and respect our children and spend time with them so what the whale journey did was it took me away from this hugely problematic situation so I'd had my baby in very unsupportive circumstances I was trying to facilitate contact with someone who was unreliable to say the least um, I um, had loving extended family who had different um, child rearing uh, beliefs from me and I was asked to leave my baby to cry which you know I'd done no research and I didn't have much of an example from my own mum who although I was very close to my mum she kept me very close and I was sort of knitted into her she was a very traumatized person from her own childhood in Ireland and suffered from enormous difficulties with her mental health so was unreliable and I had to make my own way. And I did that, I think, mainly with the help of the relationships I'd had as a child with um, non-human friends, animal friends. Um, and there's one uh, part of the book. In, in the book, I have to explain for the reader, or I, I felt I had to because I wasn't aware of it before I went to the Arctic. I was very ignorant of some of the impacts of colonial violence and what had happened in the Arctic particularly of children being forced into um, basically stolen from their parents and sent to residential schools. And that was a way of trying to destroy the indigenous culture, which is so valuable and holds totally different concepts. And the language holds different concepts from ours about respecting the world around us and having relationships with animals and seeing them as our kin, not seeing, seeing us at the top of a hierarchy of life at all, but acknowledging the interdependence. And it's a much more successful way of existing on the earth, both emotionally and um, physically. Uh, and the violence of the colonial violence and capitalism is, you know, we're seeing how it's playing out across the world. Um, so I just, I almost feel like I, I really love what you're doing. I'm not in a position to be able to homeschool my children, but I feel like the closer we can keep our children and the more that we can let them know about these situations and kind of take them back and take yeah back our lives from these systems the better and I'm talking in a very um oh what's the word idealistic way here because I can't do that myself but I think that that's a, a really important form of resistance to take our children back yeah and I don't think it should be down to us as individuals either I think this is I talk to so many parents who are like oh I wish I could home educate or I wish I could you know, not send my children to nursery, but, you know, my life is set up in such a way that I can't not do those things and then end up feeling very guilty. And I think we need to collectively move past this idea of kind of individual guilt. I think we've been so atomized by our society that everything is on the individual rather than looking at, we need to be angry, I think, angry. Yeah, it's system. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's hard to be angry when you're scared, though. Um, yeah. 
you know, I, I personally actually feel, find it, I mean, I, I have, I obviously do go on demonstrations and take my children on demonstrations and show them how important it is, but I find them terrifying. Mm. Um, I, I think that's partly to do with uh, having family who lived through the troubles. I have a member of my extended family who was waterboarded by the police and I have a deep mistrust of authorities and I find it very hard to know how to express my anger but I think you're right and I think supporting um, if, if you feel too scared to be angry or you don't know how to channel it supporting young people in their um, you know there are moves to sue for young people yes. to sue nations over climate like supporting them with everything that we have um, yeah. facilitating that facilitating um, indigenous voices stepping back and helping holding other people up so they can be heard and you know we know, know more about our systems so hopefully can help people navigate them um, I don't know I don't know I don't, I don't know what I find really interesting is that in your book you both really highlight this kind of the colonial struggle and the way that Indigenous populations have been, um, as you say, like have been treated horrifically, but often children have been the tool that they have used to try and break populations or try and destroy their culture and their heritage and their language. Um, and I've also been reading some really interesting articles recently on how the language of childhood, because we tend to see children as incompetent, incapable, in need of a firm hand of punishment and discipline and getting them on the way to adulthood, has been exactly the language which has been used in the past through colonial projects to try and, um, you know, infantilize Indigenous populations and treat them as if they don't know anything and you need the often Christian Western person to go over there and give them a firm, you know, grasp on reality and bring them up into this kind of idea of what it is to be a civilised person and how often, you know, we can learn so much also from both children's struggles and Indigenous struggles and both populations who are, I think, doing so much at the moment to be on the forefront of climate resistance. And as you say, not always in situations that are safe. You know, if you look at the revolution recently in Iran, it was young women, girls being killed and sent to prison and um, so many indigenous people who have been pushing back against climate disaster as well. Um, yeah, it feels hard to see what powerful adults in countries like ours have done, um, but also, it's absolutely yeah, a real sense of a real sense of of hope and um yeah of resistance within that too I think um what I also found really interesting in your discussions of what it felt like as a child to have those non-human friendships and relationships um I was reading a wonderful essay recently and I'm just going to read you a tiny tiny quote from it because I thought you would really enjoy it um it's by some philosophers and they're talking about children and animals and they are talking about a book um, called Why the Wild Things Are, which was written in the early 2000s by someone called Gail Nelson. And she basically was a developmental psychologist, but she looked at children's relationships with animals and she essentially argues um, that I will read it here. 
that we have assumed for only human relationships with parents, siblings, relatives, friends and teachers and other children are consequential for development. And that actually interspecies relationships are really powerful, particularly for children. And her research showed that children, their earliest dreams are of animals or their first words, apart from like mom and dad are often of animals. And that um, for very young children, when they've done tests, over 50% of their ink blot um, you know, when they did those things, they, they got a blot of ink and said, what does it represent? Over 50% of those representations were of animals, which I just found absolutely amazing. And that children between seven and 10 use the same language to describe both pets and siblings in that oh, real closeness. Yes, that's beautiful. And reading that essay has really profoundly change me like I see that so much in my daughter and the way that she feels so strongly about our cat and the animals in her life and but she sees them on an equal footing as yes. as any other person you know when she talks about our family she describes our cat as a member of the family yes. and that doesn't feel weird to her she sees him as if he's her sibling you know they've grown up together yes. she loves him desperately yes. the interconnectedness seems to be there from the beginning from what you're saying I hadn't yeah. thought of it in that way that's really lovely but that's um yes the idea of seeing an animal as our kin as Robin Wall Kimura talks about yes. that they are our relations of course they are we evolved together why do we think we're different I just find it astounding that um there is this separation and that we have allowed to happen I also have a little one who um so I don't have time for gardening I am mainly moving socks around our very small flat so that we can walk on the floor um uh and applying for grants for school uniform because I'm on a low income I'm really busy making all that happen but yeah. I have a child so I don't spend any time with plants but I have a child who really has an aptitude with plants and we went on holiday recently and um, she has this plant in a pot and she thinks it's a bean plant I think it might be I think she might have got a bean seed from a neighbor and um, she was like, what's going to happen to Beanie? So I was like, OK, well, we can maybe, you know, give it to Iris next door and uh, maybe maybe she can water it. So she was talking to Beanie saying, it's OK, Beanie, you're going to be happy over at Iris's. And I just thought, well, I can really learn off you. Yeah, that's beautiful, isn't it? Just how mm -hmm. I think we are really born with this innate sense of ourselves as natural like as part of a natural world yeah. and as interconnected with other living species and that tends to be basically instructed out of us in so many different ways from eating meat to farms in storybooks to yeah this idea of you know animals as things that we own rather than as beings that we live alongside and who have very rich social lives themselves that we tend to ignore and I think that comes across again so beautifully beautifully in your book and there's this lovely section of your book where you're talking about Max who's two at the time and how in some of your journey people are quite disdainful of him um, and sometimes quite rude to you and to Max and see him as quite unwelcome which made me so furious <laughs> reading it because obviously he has as much right to be there as anyone else but this sense that you know you're not um he almost straddles the two worlds, you know, you're you're not seen as, as adult enough, as human enough to come with us on this journey. And yet he is the one, he's like a little whale whisperer, you know, he sings to the whales and this calf comes up to him 
and it's just so miraculous and suddenly the mood shifts and people are like oh suddenly we're pleased to have this child here who seems to be attracting all of these whales and seems to be able to make the whales feel less threatened because they can hear this beautiful little toddler child's voice singing to them and it is such a moving moving story well you're describing it so beautifully um yes i um I was surprised that uh, people found the presence of a child so offensive. I kind of felt a bit sorry for them. Mm. I mean, it would obviously have something to do with how their childhood was treated, I guess. Um, but I, you know, I don't know. They were just, yeah, some people who were very, very unpleasant. And um, I do understand, you know, I've been in situations where I'm very tired and I'm on public transport and a child starts screaming but and, and and you know I've got a headache or something but it's not a big step of empathy that you have to make to think they're confined I was like that um yeah I don't think it's really excusable and it is actually part of what made life unbearable as a single parent in the hostel is that you know it, it also impacts mothers because what are you expected to do you're supposed to go and stand in a playground all day it's so boring I felt like I was in a cage and so it's not just the child that's impacted on that it's it's mothers everywhere you're shuffled into these spaces where you have to stay and I didn't want to be there. I wanted to be in different spaces. And um, that that group that I joined to go and see the gray whales in Mexico, I couldn't have navigated that by myself. I don't speak Spanish. Um, I actually thought it was a family holiday. So I was expecting loads of other families, but then of course, Max was the only child and that was a shock. And yeah. there were some people who responded really well to him. You know, we made a few honorary grandparents there. Um, just a few who found it absolutely distasteful mm. that he was there. Looking back, it's kind of funny, but at the time it was very, very hard. Really hard. And as you say, not just for Max, but for you, you know, he was yeah. in some ways sort of oblivious to some of it, although obviously children really can tell if they're being treated respectfully or not. Oh, he was completely oblivious. And I was very lucky in that he was an unusually content child I mean we were both possibly because I was also so happy to be on the move you know being on the move is my happy place so we were having a great time and he wasn't a tantrum sort of baby he took it all in his stride he was often just quiet looking out of the window if we were traveling um, so I was very lucky in that regard which made it even more surprising yeah. I don't think he had one tantrum on that tour I think he more or less behaved as little adult he was just an unusually um kind of articulate small child and still there was such hostility but mm. not from um any of the people in mexico the, the the mexican tour guides loved him and um yeah it's it's something which is specific to our culture i think yeah, I think so too. It feels like every other day I'm reading an article about why children shouldn't be allowed on airlines or mm. children shouldn't be allowed in pubs or why children should be. It feels like we're kind of going back to these like Victorian standards of children only belonging in certain spaces, which again, you know, I think is something which feels very specific to our very colonial sort of Western, in quotes, 
capitalist society which thrives on separating children yes. from their parents at a really early age and tells yep. us that that's how things are supposed to be yeah yeah um very quickly because I know we only have a few minutes left the last thing I really wanted to talk to you about is there were for anyone who hasn't read the book yet there are moments of a book which feel um you know there's there's a lot of grief in the book and it, parts of it feel very sad I definitely cried at parts of it but what's I hope that was a release I mean part oh, no, of the idea was, was to support people through the grief <laughs> because there is grief in our situation now and there's always grief if you love mm. things so it's affirming and I really wanted to support people through some of those difficult emotions as well as you know share the very joyful or funny ones oh I have to stress it's not a sad book so please don't let this put anyone off it's really <laughs> not a sad book at all but there are a couple of moments which feel very poignant um but for me the thing which really struck me reading the book and which did make me feel almost a loss was when you're describing the kind of the joy of living um and I'm going to pronounce it horrifically in Utkwigvik um Utkjavik. There you go. I'm not going to try to do that, which is um, at the very, very, very northernmost point of Alaska, yes. of Alaska, of the US, in fact. Um, yes. And the way that you describe it in terms of feeling while you were living there, this connection, this deep connection to other people, to the landscape, to animals, you know, you felt really, um, I think it really comes across just so you felt, I don't know, it seemed to me you felt very grounded and in, within this community and it made me feel really sad but that feels so different to my life here in London where I barely know my neighbours and you know we're lucky we go to parks we have green spaces near us but this kind of deep connection with the land and the landscape and the sense of sharing everything you have and living in community and supporting one another and I think it's not to romanticise, clearly life there is very hard and has been very hard over the decades for all different reasons, um, which you explore beautifully in the book. But it did really feel like we have collectively experienced this profound loss of disconnect from yeah. the natural world and from one another that we really need to find again if we are going to pull through this next period of our humanity and find a way to move through the climate crisis into something better and I think it is possible and I actually think your book feels deeply hopeful and encouraging and I really really cannot stress enough how much I would like everyone to read it well, um, thank you. but it did also really make me realize that we have you know in our quest for shiny cars and followers on Instagram and goodness knows what else it feels like we have really lost something very profound, you know, profound part of ourselves. Yeah, it was a sense of belonging that I found there, which was to so totally um, unexpected and absolutely took me by surprise. I'd never experienced it before. It was partly because of this relationship with this extremely kind man that I met, who himself was a subsistence hunter. So had a different worldview and way of life and way of moving um uh yeah I had a wonderful time there and as you say that's not to idealize um life in any community it's always hard relating to other people but there were some values there that had certainly been lost for me or that I hadn't encountered before I learned a huge amount and um I still feel deeply connected 
Uh, I've only been back once since that initial visit when I took Max back and, and, and those journeys converge at the end of the book, but I still feel a very deep connection and longing for those mm. relationships. And it gives me an enormous, enormous amount of comfort to know that 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 community is there and that I have that yeah. connection with them. And and the whales give me a lot of strength. That doesn't give me comfort because they're in such dire straits, but they give me a lot of strength thinking about the whales and in particular one female whale called Earhart who has pioneered a new or has been one of the pioneers of um, a new food source in the waters of northern Puget Sound. Um, the grey whales are experiencing an unexpected mortality event to die off and Earhart and um, some other grey whales have formed a group which has been um, nicknamed the Sounders by the research group there which is led by John Callum Bacidis, a, a really renowned whale biologist and they have found this new food source of ghost shrimp which are tricky to get to, and it is life-threatening to get to them. You know, the whales risk being stranded on an outgoing tide because they're in the intertidal zone. It's not their usual benthic prey on the bottom of the floor that they feed on in the Arctic. But the fact that they are pioneering this food source and more and more whales are being seen to use that food source, I see it as a kind of, as a, as a you know, former food bank user, um, a sort of emergency food bank that they can access during the migration route. And I think about the grey whales moving together, their community and the way they're behaving a lot. I see it as an example for me to try and follow. Mm. Gives me a lot of comfort that. Yeah. And that women, mothers are there yes. pioneering and yeah. leading the way to a future yeah. which hopefully will keep us all going. Yes different leaders oh, thank yep. you so so much for talking with me today it's been such a pleasure I feel like there are so much more that people can discover from reading your book so please go and pick it up Doreen where can people find you if they want to connect with you online um I'm on Instagram I'm Doreen writing on Instagram and my website is doreencunningham.com and thank you for your questions I just love love what you've taken from the book you've you've seen everything from the you know parallels between violence against the planet and violence against women and children which I've never wanted to try and say overtly but I really hope people would get from it and the joy and everything thank you for understanding oh, thank it you. and soundings is out on paper in paperback now isn't it, it is out in paperback and yes out in the UK and in the US so and in Germany and it's coming in lots of other places too fantastic so watch this space wherever you're listening from thank you so much thank you Eloise thank Bye you for now. thanks so much for listening if you enjoyed our conversation why not sign up to small places on Substack where you'll get podcasts, essays, Q&As and many more resources straight to your inbox. You can join for free or subscribe for just £5 a month to support my work and help me bring you more conversations just like this one. I'll see you next week. Bye for now.